Psalm 46, verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Do you believe these words to be true? Do you know our God as a God of refuge and strength? Do you know our God as a God of help in times of trouble? I trust that these words are a great encouragement to you if you know God. But if you don't know God, I I want you to see what these words mean through this psalm for you this morning. As we start, let me tell you where we're ending this morning. We're actually going to end, and uh, after the sermon, we're going to sing together uh, a a well-known hymn of the church, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Martin Luther wrote this hymn, uh, and he based it on, on Psalm 46. As he studied this, he found great encouragement and hope in these words of Psalm 46, so that when we got our English trans- translation of what he wrote, we know well the words, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Martin Luther understood well what it was like to be surrounded by a flood of mortal ills, to be surrounded by uh, a world filled with evil. He knew well what it meant to have to rely on God as a refuge and a strength. Uh, Last fall, you heard us just recount a few little events of the Reformation as we celebrated the 500-year anniversary of the events of some of the Reformation. What we in particular were commemorating was the postage of the 95 Theses. On October 31st, 1517, as Martin Luther recognized some of the flaws that were within the church, and he wanted to work to help draw a light to the truth. Well, we don't know for sure when he wrote this hymn, A Mighty Fortress, is our God. There's several documented theories of when it might have taken place, but it seems to be that the theory that holds the, the most weight would be that he wrote this somewhere around the year of 1527. So it would have been 10 years after the posting of the 95 Theses. And so remember how the Reformation would have worked. We don't celebrate that on the day he posted those 95 Theses that everything changed in an instant. There were years worth of things going on behind the scenes, and there would have been all kinds of events that were going on that just uh, the turmoil that would have surrounded the countries and the churches and the people's lives. So think of Martin Luther and what would have happened for him for years as he had to flee, as he had to run, as his life was in danger. And so in 1527, there was a plague that came upon Wittenberg. And so uh, you would have thought of the danger that would have been um, for everyone's physical health. And so Martin Luther watched his own children become sick with this gravely ill. He understood what it was like for his life to be on the run. He watched some of his closest companions give their lives in defense of the truth that he was proclaiming. And so you saw at times the overwhelming discouragement for Martin Luther, just this weight uh, and and even uh, what some historians have looked back on and and just um, described as a spiritual depression that set in upon the life of Martin Luther. And so he was someone who knew well what it meant to need to have God as a refuge. 
to rely upon God as a strength. And one of Martin Luther's closest friends was a man named Philip Melanchthon, and he would off, it's said that he would often turn to Philip and say, Philip, let's sing the 46th. And he was referring to this psalm as he went to this text and he, transla- and he used these words to compose the hymn that we sing in English today, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Do you believe that God is a mighty fortress? Because if you do, that should bring you great hope. That should bring you great encouragement. But I also want you to know, that this, this, is what, this is what Martin Luther would say as, as he turned to Philip Melanchthon, as they wanted to sing this. This, in his own words, is why he said they would sing. We sing this psalm to the praise of God because he is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. Do you think you realize that Mar- do you think Martin Luther realized the extent of the spiritual battle that he was in? I think he did. And that's why he understood that we need God as a refuge and strength. He is a very present help in the trouble. And for those of us who are believers, that should bring us great hope. There should be encouragement that our God is this God of strength. But I also want you to know, as we look at this text this morning, while this should encourage the believer, for those of you that are here with God, you should find great hope in the fact that God is a refuge and a strength. But as we go through this text, if you're here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if your heart is far from God, then these truths of God being a God uh, uh, and the strength and refuge that he is, the strength that he possesses, his character and nature as a God who will judge and who will one day reign victorious, these truths ought to be a warning to you this morning. And I want us to catch both of those aspects, that the, that the believer finds strength and hope and encouragement in who God is as a God of strength. And if you're here this morning and you aren't close to God, if you are far from God, let this be a warning that, that you need to recognize who God is. You need to acknowledge his strength. And as we go through the text this morning, here's the one thing that I want you to catch this morning. If you're taking notes, it's this. Our God is a God of unmatched strength. Our God is a God of unmatched strength. Two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 138, and we said that our God is a God who cares. And we're going to see how that care provides for believers a refuge and strength. But I also want you to catch and know about God, that our God is a God of unmatched strength. And that's why the psalmist can say that, our, that, our, that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That's why the psalmist knows these things to be true. Here's what I want to do as we go through Psalm 46 this morning. I actually want to very briefly, if we can, walk all the way through the text. I'm going to do it in about three sections and try to summarize and give you uh, the main thoughts of what's behind this psalm. And rather than go through it phrase by phrase like we often do, we're going to get through the summary of it, and then we're going to come back and we're going to look at a few different areas of what this means for us. And we're going to kind of, that way, we're going to split the psalm up and look at a few different themes. We're going to look at what this psalm says about the world and, and what the world contains. 
we're going to look at what this psalm says about God. What does this psalm teach us about God? And then the third thing we're going to look at is for us. What's our response? In light of what we've looked at about what this psalm says about the world and about who God is, what does this psalm teach us and how should we apply these truths to our lives? So let's look at this together. Psalm 46 and starting in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. You see the psalmist start out and he says he proclaims God's strength. He says that God is a refuge in a time of trouble. He says we don't have to fear whatever happens in the world. And he describes even some of the natural events of the world, some of the natural surroundings of the earth. And he says even in the worst of circumstances, we don't have to fear. Look at verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So you see the psalmist move now and he's, he's describing what this means. If God really is a God of refuge and strength and if we don't have to fear when things go bad, it, it speaks of the encouragement and hope that that brings. And it speaks about God's presence being in a city and a river coming from that city that makes the heart glad. And you see that God is there protecting this city. He's there in the midst. And the nations can rage however they want but God's defense of the city withholds because the God of Jacob is their fortress. The Lord of hosts is there with them. There would, uh, there's commentators as they're trying to understand, well, what were, the, what were the surrounding events of why this psalm was written? And there's a few different theories or circumstances, perhaps at times when Israel was under attack, perhaps when Jerusalem itself was under siege, and you saw God rise to the defense of the city, and perhaps that's what this psalm is commemorating. And though we can't pinpoint the specific event, you look at this psalm, and it's a psalm of testimony, a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of praise that God has defended his people, that though the nations rage, God is a God who, who is there to give defense, to give hope, because the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And then look and see what this means. Now here's, here's some of the application, or here's, here's now what the reader is supposed to do in light of who God is and what God has done. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And then it comes back to that refrain of verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so you see, because of who God is... Because of what God has done, you see the psalmist just recognize that, that God will be exalted, that we should stop and realize who he is, and that the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He is our stronghold. And so you would see that the reader would look at this and, 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 and there would be great strength. There would be great encouragement found in praising God for who he is and what he has done. So here's how I want to study this this morning. We're, we're going to split this back up, and I want to pulse. We're going to just look at three themes. What does this teach us about the world we live in? What does this teach us about earth? And we're going to look at how the psalm speaks to that. 
Then we're going to look at what does it teach us about God? Who is God and what has he done? And we'll look at that theme from this psalm. And then the third thing I want to look at is, well, what does this mean for us? What's our response in light of who God is? How then should we live? So let's start by looking at the earth. As you go through this psalm, there's, there's kind of a one-word summary that you could give that described the earth in the way it was for the psalmist in the time that the, this was written. Certainly throughout much of Israel's history, this was true. Certainly for you and I, it's still true. And the one-word sum, one summary of the events of the earth is chaos. That, that there is destruction, that there is death and the effects of sin and the world is in chaos. Look at verse 2 and it says, Therefore we will not fear even though, though earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And the psalmist is envisioning time where things are so bad, where the chaos and tumult is so great that the earth itself is affected, that mountains are actually moved into the heart of the sea. Earthquakes so bad that, that the mountains would move. And he says, though, though things could get this bad, though the water would swell, this is the surrounding events that the psalmist is in. And he doesn't really, he, he, he's, he's going to proclaim that they don't have to fear, but you can Catch and recognize the danger that he's describing. He's writing in a time, uh, so whether the city was under siege or a time that God did, a, did defend, and you realize and recognize that there could even be natural disasters, and the psalmist is saying, even if it's so bad that the mountains are thrown into the heart of the sea, that's how bad sometimes things get in the world. If you come down to verse 6, in verse 6, he's talking about nations that rage and kingdoms that totter. So actually, not just the natural events of man, but actually in some of the surrounding things that go on in people-to-people -people relationships and nations as they're with one another. And you see the war. Certainly, Israel routinely was at war with her enemies. And there were many that wanted to wipe Israel off the face of the earth and wanted to move them out of the land. And you see here, he's saying that even when the nations are raging when the kingdoms are moving in verse 9 you're going to see the evidences of war we're going to look at verse 9 more closely later but you're seeing that God is bringing peace because the nations are at war there's a bow that needs to be broken there's a sh uh, there's a spear that needs to be shattered and so you recognize the world is in chaos there is death. There is destruction. Things are uncertain. Things are unstable. You can't trust one day in the morning what's going to happen the next morning. Where will things be? Will the earth be safe? The answer is no. There is not safety this side of heaven. Have you turned on the news recently? Have you seen any stories of some of the things that are taking place in the world around us? And you recognize that though we don't know the specific events that this psalm was written under, we are largely in an unchanged day and age when there is chaos reigning in the world where things are not safe, where things are not as they should be. Things are not getting better. We realize and recognize that there is danger all around us, both from physical, earthly, natural disaster sources, but also from the people and nations that we live with, and we realize the world is in danger. And brothers and sisters, this has been true since the very beginning of the creation story when sin entered the picture. And God originally created Adam and Eve and placed them into the garden and everything was perfect and it was paradise and as it should be. 
And then man rebelled against God at the bidding of Satan after he himself rebelled against God. And in that moment, sin entered the world and chaos has been reigning on this earth ever since. Now, God is still the God who reigns. God is still the universal king. But there is an earthly power, as Martin Luther said, on earth who has no equal, who is sowing the seeds of destruction and there is all kinds of reason to fear. If you don't know who God is, take a look at the world around you and you will see this world is a world to be afraid of because there is death and sin. It's only when God enters the picture that then we have no reason to fear. And let's take a look at that. So if that's some of the world that surrounded the psalmist circumstances, it's still true of us today. Well, what does this psalm teach us about God? What does this psalm teach us about who God is? Look at verse 1. God is our refuge. That that God would be a stronghold. In verse 7 and 11, it's going to talk about God being a fortress. Uh, this, This stronghold that you can run and flee to in times of protection. Right? That that's who God is. God is a refuge. Not only a refuge in terms of a defensive strength, that that's who God is, that God, prevent, God possesses a strength that uh, protects us in a defensive sense, but also in an offensive sense, uh, in, a, in a weapon of offense sense, that God is strength. He's a very he- present help in times of trouble. That that's who God is. That, that at the moment we need Him, God is there and He is a refuge. He is strength. He is a very present help in trouble. This does not mean that there is no trouble. This does not mean that there is nothing that's painful. It means that when there is trouble, God is there as a refuge. That God is a strength. And this is the God that we serve. He is a refuge. He is a strength. If you look at verse 4, verses 4 through 6, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. I want you to see, make sure you catch the shift in tone in this psalm. Look at verses 2 and 3. 2 and 3 is when the mountains are being thrown into sea. It's when the water is roaring and foaming and chaos is reigning and the world is at its most dangerous and you flip to verse 4 and there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Verse 2 talked about mountains being moved into the sea. Verse 6 talks about kingdoms tottering or moving is the word. That's the exact same word as verse 5 that says God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God has the ability to defend, to protect. He will not allow to be shaken and moved what sin and chaos tries to shake and to move. This is who God is. God has the ability to, to help right at the break of dawn that God, God is there to help this city and to provide refuge. Certainly, probably what's coming to mind in the, in, in the lives of the Israelites is times where they have seen God protect their city, earthly city of Jerusalem and there where God's presence dwelt with His people in the temple and uh, 
they realized and watched God had moved powerfully to protect them as a people. And so in some sense, they're probably thinking of times that God has protected that way. But in another sense, there's also this forward future looking where we think to the new Jerusalem and where God will once again dwell with man and God will protect and God will rule and God will reign. And there's this forward future looking to that day in this new city where people dwell with God in that sense. Look then at verse 9. This is who our God is. This is who, what God has done for us. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. You see the way that God brings peace? Someday God will bring peace to all the nations. This is that forward looking that someday God will work throughout the sovereign events of man and God will bring an end to all wars. Notice what happens. God does not show up on the scene and negotiate peace. With force, he enforces, he enacts peace. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He lights the chariots on fire. And we see here how God worked. James Montgomery Boyce says this, when verse 9 says he makes wars cease to the ends of earth, it's not presenting God as a peace negotiator, but as a conqueror. Here's who God is, that one day he will show up and he will bring an end to all wars. And so now while there is chaos reigning in the world, while nations rage, while kingdoms totter, one day God will bring an end end to all of this, and that is why for the believer, God is a God of refuge. God is a God of strength. God is a God who can be trusted even when the surrounding events are merely chaos, even when we can't make sense of how it works. So if that's who God is, if that's how the world is around us, what's our response? For the believer, for the one who knows Jesus Christ, How should we live in light of these truths? If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, what does Psalm 46 mean to you? Let me take just a bit of a rabbit trail. Why would we study Scripture this way? Why would we think of Psalms this way? Let me step away from the text. This is a rabbit trail. R.C. Sproul has said in a number of times, a number of ways, our greatest problem is we don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. You believe that? I think it's true that, that we as individuals need to have a better understanding of who God is and in light of that, who we are. And so we want to study a text of Scripture like this and think, well, who is God? And if that's who God is, what does it mean in my life? Teens, if I could make just one bit of application to you guys on, on this rabbit trail that I'm taking, what is, what is your greatest need as you're trying to make sense of life, right? And, and you're going through this phase where you're figuring out who am I, who are my parents, um, how do I navigate? these days of school ahead of me and what am I going to do with my life? You don't just need to figure out who you are. You need to figure out who God is. Figure out who God is and then how does your life then reflect that? You won't be able to figure out your life until you figure out who God is and the way you're going to know that is through His Word. God has revealed Himself through His Word. Do everything you can to know God through His Word because only then will you have a proper understanding of who you are. There are so many teens who are um, walking away from the truth and they're not walking away from the God of the Bible. They never knew the God of the Bible. Uh, And I want you to know who God is, 
and then in light of that, who you are. And that's not just true for teens. That's, that's true for all of us. I'm, I'm watching that as, a, as, as the years go by, I'm realizing I don't know God well enough. I, I, I have flaws in my thinking about who I am because I need to know God better and I need to know him through his word. And that's why we want to look at what this psalm says about God and then, well, what does it mean of us? What is our response? Who should we be? Rabbit trail over. We're coming back to Psalm 46, okay? What's, what's the response for us? Well, start back at verse 1 and 2. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. What's our response? If God is a God of refuge and strength, for the believer, for the one that knows God, there is nothing to fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the sea, though the waters roar and foam, we have nothing to fear. Because God is a refuge. God is a strength. You, you, when chaos reigns and rules, there is something to fear. But because of who God is, for the believer, there is nothing to fear. John writes about this in 1 John, that perfect love, when we truly know who God is, perfect love casts out fear. And so we realize for the believer that we have nothing to fear, even though around us we look and we realize chaos is still very much alive on this earth, but for the believer we will not fear, though earth gives way. Why? For our God is a very present help in times of trouble. He's a refuge, and he's a strength. And over and over, Martin Luther brought himself back to these truths, that our God is a God who is of refuge. He's a mighty fortress. He's a bulwark never failing. And though we fight a great earthly foe, we know who is on our side. Jesus Christ. He must win the battle, right? And so we have nothing to fear even though life at times is filled with chaos. And so let us be people who come back to these truths over and over that our God is a God of refuge, our God is a God of strength, and therefore we want to be people who do not fear. And this, isn't, this isn't a command to the listener to not fear. It's a declaration. It's a promised truth. That God is a God of refuge. God is a God of strength. Therefore, our response, we won't fear because of who God is. What a great truth. There's a few more instructions in the psalm than uh, in terms of our response for us. Come down to verse 8. Here, here, in a technical sense, is the first command of the psalm. Uh, to, to the listener in terms of an imperative, something that we are supposed to do to not just the listener, but the praiser, the one who is singing this psalm as truth. Come, behold the works of the Lord. So, so now we're invited and commanded that we need to stop and gaze upon the works of the Lord. Look at what he has done and look at what he is doing. Give our attention to who God is and the ways he is at work on earth. And look at this, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease and the end of the, he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Here's the second command, the second imperative. Be still and know that I am God. Here the voice of the psalm changes. 
Whereas before, it's someone giving instruction, someone teaching, it's, it's someone who's uh, joining in in the chorus of praise and they're talking about God. Now the voice becomes the voice of God and God says, God gives the command, be still and know that I am God. God says he will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And God gives the reason. Why are you supposed to be still and know that he's God? Well, look at how he's worked. He's brought desolations on the earth. He has brought an end to all wars. He has brought, he has, uh, brought a cease to all of this violence and war. We look forward to that one day. And this is what he says then. Here's our instructions. Be still and know that I am God. In this psalm, we're supposed to stop and recognize that because of who God is, he is the only one that gets to take the place of God. He is the only one that can bring an end to all wars. He is the only one that can provide a way out of trouble. He is the one that rules nations. He is the one that gives the answers to the wars. He is the one that brings desolations on earth. And someday, he will be exalted among all nations. So what is the psalmist saying? In this psalm, when we are told to be still and know that I am God, there's, there's a few ways that this is typically thought of in our world today. Uh, I don't know about you, but whenever I had seen Psalm 46, verse 10, until I studied it out this week, I had an incorrect understanding of Psalm 46, 10. In the command, be still and know that I am God, how I typically thought of that was that, I, that it, it was a command, it was a comfort to the believer that in a quiet, contemplative moment, I needed to be still and see God as God. And that when I would cease from my activity, I would recognize God in all of his godness. And in the still quiet moments, I would find God. That's how I thought that verse meant. Now, that's, not a, that's, not a, that's a biblically true statement. There are times we need to do that, right? But that's not what this verse is saying. In our How to Study Your Bible mini-series that we did through the summer, at a couple different times, a few of the sessions, we said, before we can figure out what a verse means to us, we have to do the hard work of figuring out what did it mean in the context. And here's a picture-perfect example of the ways that I did that wrong for many years with this verse. I thought... It was telling us to be quiet and contemplative that in those quiet moments we would be able to see who God was and we would find comfort in that. This verse is not a comfort to believers. It's a warning to those who try to live life without God. You catch that? He's talking about God and the nations that are raging and the nations that are at war. And he says, God is a God. He's going to break the bow. He's going to shatter the spear. He's going to set the chariots on fire. Be still. That word means to cease all activity. Stop your raging. Be still and know that I am God. Acknowledge God as God. Nations, stop raging. Stop being at war because God is God and one day he will be exalted. He says, I will be be exalted. Be still and acknowledge that. Recognize that God is God. You have the long quote in your bulletin where James Montgomery Boyce says this, therefore, in this setting, be still and know that I am God is not advice to us to lead a contemplative life, however important that may be. It means rather, lay down your arms. Surrender and acknowledge that I am the one and only victorious God. Of course, the time to do this is now, while a desirable place can be yours through the work of Jesus on the cross. If you will not surrender now, you will do so one day in spite of yourself, though it will be 
It will be for judgment rather than blessing. This is because God is God. And in the end, it will be his power and holiness that are exalted. No one can hope to resist him. And so the fact that God is God should bring great hope and encouragement to the believer. But if you are far from God, the fact that God is a refuge and strength with unmatched strength, realize and recognize that one day you have to acknowledge that. Be still and know that He is God. He will be exalted one day among the nations. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. This is what we looked at in Philippians just a few months ago. And I want to read the verses for you from the book of Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, whether you acknowledge it now or not, you will recognize that God is God. Every knee will bow. And so I plead with you that those of you that don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, that the fact that God is a God of unmatched strength, well, the reason He is that is because He is God. He will be exalted among the nations. And right now, you may be trying to live your life apart from God. Perhaps you haven't yet turned to Christ for salvation. Perhaps you think that one day you will fully give your life to Christ, but yet you haven't. Perhaps you think there is time to come to God. And I would plead with you that God is God. He will be exalted among the nations. Be still. Stop trying to live your life without Him. You cannot ignore God. And you will not succeed in your plans apart from him. Be still and know that he is God. Come to him and realize your sin and turn to Christ for salvation. Realize that though your sin separates you from God, Jesus Christ has made payment for sin through his death on the cross. And that as God raised Jesus to new life, that is God's approval of Christ's death as sufficient for your sins and sufficient for the punishment that you deserved that God, that Christ has taken the place of your sins through what he has done on the cross. And that if you turn from your sins in repentance and faith, believing in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, you can find salvation and eternal life. God is God. And one day every nation will acknowledge that. And one day so will you. And the fact that he is a refuge and strength brings comfort to the believer. But for the unbeliever, it should be a warning And this warning is here in the psalm to be still, to cease from all your godless striving and acknowledge God as God. That's the command for us, is to be still and to know that he is God, that he will be exalted among the nations. As we conclude, I I just want to look at verses 7 and 11. In, In light of all of this, uh, the, the world that we live in, the earth and the chaos that reigns, the God uh, and who he is and his unmatched strength and what it means for us that for the believer we have nothing to fear but that the unbeliever needs to be still and acknowledge God as God. I, I want to have this word of encouragement for the believer. And look at this refrain that's repeated twice. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. It says it in verse 7, repeats it in verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. 
The God of Jacob is our fortress. Oh, the encouragement for for the people of Israel as God was their God. And you think about the the beauty of that picture of God dwelling with man, of of us having a personal relationship with God. But we recognize and realize that in the garden, God walked with man. Face to face, they conversed with one another. And sin has distorted that fellowship and relationship. Christ made a way for us to have a relationship possible through his death on the cross. And we wait now for the day when one day God will again dwell with man. And yet, it's not entirely just a forward future. We know that we won't dwell with man. We don't currently dwell with God in the same way that we do one day. And yet, we recognize that even now, for the believer, God is with us. We have his presence. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. And God, the God of hosts, is with us. That word hosts speaks of the heavenly armies, the heavenly angels. The the word there is Sabaoth. That's why we sing Lord Sabaoth his name, the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth. He's the God that's with us. He is the God of Jacob, and he is our fortress. The God of Jacob, that's an interesting title. Why would the psalmist call God the God of Jacob, the one who is our fortress? Well, throughout the Old Testament, you often hear God referred to as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, God of Jacob, right? Well, of those three, and you think of some of the patriarchs of the faith of the Israelites, if you were to study out the life of Jacob in particular, you know what you would find? Jacob has some, uh, how, how could we put this uh, delicately, embarrassing moments in his storyline, right? If you were to ever to read Genesis chapter 25 through 50, and even just like at some point this afternoon, skim through the paragraph headings of your Bible, uh, these are not the bedtime stories you would make for your children. There is scandal. Jacob's name means deceiver. There's a lot of deceit. There's a lot of scandal. There's a lot of immorality. And yet, what do you see over and over and over? It's not because of Jacob's faithfulness that the God of Jacob is our fortress. It's because of the faithfulness of the God of Jacob that the God of Jacob is our fortress. Alexander McLaren said it this way, the God of Jacob is the the Lord of hosts. More wondrous still, the Lord of hosts is the God of Jacob. And he's the God of me. And he's the God of you. And if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you've turned from your sins and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then you have this wondrous hope that the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress, he is our stronghold, and he has a faith that is, he has a strength that is unmatched. That's who our God is, and we can find great comfort in that. And while we cling to those truths here now in this life, we look forward to the day when we will see it in a new reality, when we will dwell again with God face to face in the book of Revelation 
Revelation gives us this beautiful picture in verse in chapter 21. Revelation 21, the first four verses say this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And the first five verses of chapter 22 say this, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And brothers and sisters, this is the Lord of hosts, the God of Jacob, who is our fortress, and for this is the day we wait. And even now, we have his strength and presence with us through the person of the Holy Spirit. And while Jesus was leaving this earth nearly 2,000 years ago, this is the closing words that he gave to his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And that should be a great comfort to the believer. And if you're here without Christ, be still and know that he is God. Come to him. Repent of your sins. Call out in faith, trusting in Christ for salvation. God is with us. He's a God of unmatched strength. It is said that John Wesley, on the day of his death, he had nearly lost his voice and lost all of his strength. And yet, mustering the strength, he cried out as loud as he could, The best of all is, God is with us. And lifting his hand and waving it one more time, he again repeated, The best of all is, God is with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I pray that you know that as true because that is a great comfort. We have nothing to fear, though the earth gives way. If you don't know Christ as Savior, you have much to fear. Be still and know that he is God. Turn to him, turn to him today for salvation. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we are grateful that you are a God of unmatched strength. We are grateful that that though the earth gives way, we have nothing to fear because you are a refuge and a strength and a very present help in times of trouble. Father, I know that there are many sitting in this room today who are 
going through times of trouble, I pray that you would show yourself to them as a very present help, as a refuge and a strength. May they find encouragement in their relationship with you, in the nearness of you to them. May they find that encouragement in your word as you seek to commune with them. Father, to those that are here this morning and don't know Christ as Savior, may they be still and know that you are God. May they turn to you for salvation. May you bring conviction May they call out to you in repentance and faith, trusting in Christ's work alone on the cross. We ask and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.